Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today we're going to talk foreign exchange. For this conversation, I'm happy to be joined by an old colleague from my time as an institutional PM at RBC Global Asset Management. It's Dagmara Fialkowski. Dagmara is the head of global fixed income and currencies at RBC GAM, where she leads a team that looks after more than $200 billion in assets under management, including the RBC Bond Fund, Canada's largest bond mutual fund. In addition to her day job, Dagmara is active in industry and community initiatives, including advancing adoption of a global code of conduct for FX as a member of the Canadian Foreign Exchange Committee. So we're fortunate to have Dagmara with us today and, and take us through the history of FX trading, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as they say, as well as fill us in on the progress being made to improve transparency, execution, and ethical dealing. So welcome to the show, Dagmar. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. So Dagmar, I'd like to start, if we can, with a quick market sizing. So just how big is the global FX market, and, and how does that compare to other markets like equities and fixed income? Well, in one word, it's huge. <laughs> it's actually, uh, BIS does a study every three years and surveys the market size and participants. Uh, and the latest study from 2021, I believe, put the size of the market at over $7 trillion of daily turnover. That's several times that of daily turnover in equities and fixed income. There is no equivalent body doing survey of equity and fixed income turnover, but we can safely say that it's several times higher. And we've invested over $7 trillion, just a little over $2 trillion in daily turnover is in spot transactions. And then the rest, over $5 trillion, is in derivatives that are linked to the spot market towards futures options in FX. That market, if you think about what happened globally in trade since 2000, you know, we talked about the globalization in the, indus, uh, in the global economy and trade, foreign exchange has grown alongside. So simple number, since great financial crisis, the size of the FX turnover doubled. Wow. So we're talking some big numbers here. So when we're when putting that in context, when we talk about hearing now about the ugly can have a wide-reaching effect. So for some of our listeners, the FX markets, they may conjure up an image of a sort of wild west of trading where pricing is a suggestion. And at least on the sell side where big fortunes have been made, sometimes, sometimes at the expense of their clients. If you don't mind, I'd love it if you could lay out some of the kinds of shenanigans that have happened in this market over the years. When it comes to shenanigans, it's not always the guy asking you to change money in on a street when you're a tourist. Some not so uh, proud moments in institutional FX market uh, happened among large counterparties, uh, especially if I reach in my memory back to early 2000s when I started participating in the market more often. And if you put it together with the fact that, you know, we're talking about an over-the-counter market, no centralized exchange, no centralized recording of prices. It's a very fragmented market. You have thousands of participants of different variety in terms of what's driving the uh, participation in the market, buy side, sell side, central banks, trading platforms. We're talking about very sophisticated and large participants, as well as smaller corporates, 
including consolidators who are trading for retail clients. So this market, because of this, this its old OTC nature and fragmentation, had lacked coherent regulation, and that led to some abuses. If I reach back in my memory to headlines that we had seen frequently in early 2000s, it would be about often custodian banks uh, trading outside of daily ranges, uh, large asset managers realizing that they had been overcharged for their uh, participation in FX markets. Uh, one title that comes to mind came from Wall Street Journal in 2011, and the title was Suspicion of Forex Gouging Spreads. But that was, these headlines came, unfortunately, often enough to be noticed. And I, th I think that one was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that was where the custodians were basically just filling at the worst fill of the day, basically, on on whenever they were marking them. Right. If you did, as a client, your due diligence, you could see that sometimes your transaction was done outside of the daily range. So above the high or below the low, right? But there were other abuses, free sharing of information between uh, dealers about large clients' orders, running stop losses, front-running clients' orders, plenty of things that you could characterize as kind of wild FX market. And these abuses caught the eye of BIS and, of course, central banks. And BIS was the initiator of the cleaning up of the industry, kind of. In 2015, they reached out to central banks to create a working group that would result in this FX code of conduct that would guide behavior of these diverse participants. I understand there was a network of national FX committees that was formed Dagmar, along with a global FX committee. Can, can you talk us through what these entities are, who serves on them, as well as, as how they're working to address these problems with the market through the, through the FX Global Code? So at the country level, there are foreign exchange committees that are facilitated by central banks. And I believe that these committees existed for quite a long time before the code was ever kind of started, the work on the code started. But initially, they existed with participation only by the sell side. It is actually when the work on the code started that buy side participants were invited to join these national foreign exchange committees. And this is the time when uh, I was invited as a representative of uh, RBC Global Asset Management uh, to participate on the Canadian Foreign Exchange Committee and participate in the working group uh, of buy-side and sell-side participants alongside uh, Bank of Canada, uh, working out our view on the principles of the code. At the same time, the same work was happening, I believe, in 15 other countries, along, so there were 16 uh, central banks or uh, local FX committees that were involved in the work. And the work was coordinated by Global Foreign Exchange Committee. Global Foreign Exchange Committee is um, uh, this body that unites the local foreign exchange committees. And it's, I believe, most important. The role now is to 
keep the FX code a relevant, living, current document in the market. Right. And it's it, it's organized around a handful of, of principles that you mentioned there. I, I, we'll get through maybe going through those in a minute there, but I'm, I'm curious about how, how that take up happened on the sell side. So how broad is that acceptance of the code or adherence to the code and, and how, how did they get that buy-in for them? Well, if you think about the participants or who the code applies to, it's anybody that participates in wholesale FX markets. So central banks, buy side, sell side. Among buy side, it's not just asset managers, but also corporations, right? Plus larger and smaller and liquidity providers and trading platforms. So why sell side adopted? Well, a simple answer would be that central banks have a very close relationship with sell side, right? Because they deal with sell side with dealers. So it wasn't difficult to ask dealers to sign the code. Buy side is more fragmented, right? Uh, and there is no direct relationship between buy side and, uh, and central banks. Also, I think buy side, when we talked about these behaviors that were maybe less honorable, these were happening around uh, amongst sell side. So it wasn't a priority to have a code adopted by the buy side. And the buy side often looked, and participants often looked at it like, listen, we were not the problem. Why would we have to do the work to adopt the code? Yeah, and that's 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 a good question. And I'd, I'd actually like to talk about that in a moment here, the, the question about buy side adoption of it and kind of what the drivers for that might be. But before we get to that, I'm wondering if you could talk about the voluntary nature of the code. I'm just wondering if it's if you think it's as effective as it needs to be to move the needle, given that it that the adherence is voluntary. Like, how do you create accountability for adherence to to the principles of the code? I actually think that the fact that it's voluntary it gives us a lot of flexibility, and uh, as well as when you commit to the code it's because you actually believe that it's beneficial to you. Sometimes I think if something is a regulatory rule or a law, you may believe that it's not relevant to you, but you have to obey, right? Or if, uh, demonstrate that you are following it. I actually believe that the code is this really good comprehensive document that describes best practices and it should be in each asset asset manager's interest and in our client's interest to know what these best practices are and improve our procedures around it. So I actually look at it as it's the strength of the code is that it's voluntary and you can apply it to the extent that it is applicable to you which actually links to the critical principle of the code, principle of proportionality. So the code recognizes that in order to cover the whole landscape, buy side, sell side, central banks, etc., the principles had to be including everybody's business, but not every participant's activities are relevant to each principle or not every principle is relevant to all the activities of each principle, uh, of each uh, participant. So for example, as an asset manager, we are not making markets for clients. We are not streaming prices for clients. 
So some of these principles are not applicable to us, whereas others absolutely are. So we have a choice to use the ones that are not just relevant, but that can have the potential to improve how we do business. Yeah, so I'm curious if you could talk a bit about that and how you look at it from RBC GAM's side. I mean, what what do you see as the benefits of, of signing onto the code and, and how are you applying it in, in your own business? I always thought that at RBC GAM, we are rather sophisticated participant in FX market. Since before I joined, I joined in 1997, RBC GAM always had internal FX execution. So we uh, to the extent that we were allowed by uh, local markets, we always did our own FX transactions in order to avoid relying on third-party execution. Yet, because we only knew our side of the business, the buy-side side of the business, we actually, by going through the code, learned a lot about the other side, how dealers look at the transaction flow, how they handle orders. So when we were going through the code and learning what is applicable to us and it's what's not, we discovered that the code is, has become this education tool for our desk, not only for the traders, but also for the staff that works uh, on settlements and uh, operations, for staff working in risk management, compliance, we actually included the code as an educational tool in our onboarding of new staff to help them learn and understand the markets that they participate in. This education allowed also the staff to be more decisive when it comes to interactions with our counterparties. They knew with confidence what they can expect of the counterparties, what treatment, for example, what level of um, confidentiality and transparency uh, about how we are engaging in the markets, how our orders will be treated, whether our counterparty acts as an agent or as a principal, all of these, so so that the staff became more empowered to, uh, to expect best execution. It has helped us evaluate our processes and procedures also when it comes to understanding evolution of settlements, uh, for example, and tools that can improve settlements, backup tools when it comes to executing transactions. Uh, so I mentioned education, I mentioned ability to actually ex demand best execution of counterparties benchmark against best practices and tools available in the markets. And with all of that, the confidence that we have in our governance tools as an asset manager has increased. And we believe that this means for our clients that we can represent our governance frameworks with bigger confidence. Terrific. Well, that's uh, that's a great rundown on the code today, Dagmara. Thank you for that. We're we're just getting to the end of our time here, so I'm going to ask you our our final two part question here, which is, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? I probably would like to have exposure earlier in my career to different asset classes. 
I started on the fixed income side and luckily fixed income side has been growing continuously for my career from domestic to global through investment grade to EM and high yield, etc. But I have never been on the equity side and I think perhaps uh, that would be a good exposure early on in the career. I've been speaking today with Dagmara Fielkowski, Head of Global Fixed Income and Currencies at RBC Global Asset Management and member of the Canadian Foreign Exchange Committee. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Dagmara. Thank you. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. Mm-hmm.